What's that? I am now, yeah. <laughs> All right, Matthew 13 and verse 53. It says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then has this man these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, again, as we look at your word, I just ask that you would help us to um, understand, help us to grow, uh, help me as I'm speaking this morning to be clear in the things that I say, and I pray, Lord, that it would be of help to those listening, Lord. And let's just think of our church and our community, our country. Um, Lord, we just ask that you would intervene, help us, give us again the freedom to gather and worship, Lord. Just ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've gone through chapter 13, everything up until this point has been very doctrinal, very We've been dealing with things like the kingdom of heaven and some end times things that Jesus has been dealing with through there. And as I've gone through that, I've been very heavy in scripture, just trying to build from a scriptural basis, expanding on, on what Jesus is talking about there, showing where he's coming from and, and where it's leading to. And so it's kind of nice to get out of some of that harder stuff that we've been looking at. But then we get to this point and it's not a very encouraging passage either. But we'll have a look at it and see what's happening here. So that first verse, verse 53 says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables... He departed then. So Jesus ends all these parables. And it was just, I think we said it was seven different parables on the kingdom of heaven. And he's just building that. I said last week, it's line upon line, upon line precept upon precept. He's putting all these pieces together, building all these different pictures to give a more complete picture of that kingdom of heaven that he's describing. And so he's finished this. And he leaves. It says, when he came into his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, insomuch that they were astonished and said, whence hath this man this wisdom? Now, it says he went to his own country, and if you follow chronologically through Jesus' ministry, I believe this is the second time 
he's gone back to his, his own hometown. It's the second time that he's been rejected by those same people. I'm just thinking about that care, that love he had for his hometown, for the people that he grew up with. I think we all have that that longing. There's a, a love for that familiar place, that place that we call home, the place where we grew up, where our friends and family are. I remember as a kid, we, I grew up, my parents moved around quite a bit, and for as long as I can remember, um, up around when I was 10 years old, I don't remember a point prior to that where my dad actually had a job. <laughs> and I don't know how long it was that he was out of work at that point, but he, I, I just remember this ongoing, you know, um, we would take turns praying, at dinner time and us kids would always, the prayer would be, help dad find a job. And so that's my memory. I have no idea how long that carried on for, but eventually, and this was in Alberta, right before things picked up there, but he decided he was gonna go home. And home to my parents was Nova Scotia. And we packed up and loaded everything into a bus and hooked his trailer, or his truck onto the back, and off we went to Nova Scotia. And to my parents, they were heading home. And what is it about home <laughs> that draws us back? And just thinking, um, Jen says I need to switch mics. Is that better? That is better. <laughs> um, with our mission, Jack and Penny Earls, how they've been, they were up in Armstrong for many years and then they've been at the, our mission house in Thunder Bay for the last, I don't remember how many years, 10 to 15 years, somewhere in there. And it's time to retire for them. They're, they're getting tired and they can't keep on doing what they're doing. And so we're searching for a couple to replace them, but guess what they're doing, where they're moving when they retire. They're not staying in Thunder Bay. They're heading back home, home, where, southern Ontario, where, where they grew up, where their family is, um, where, their, where their kids and relatives, to back to what's familiar. And we all have that tendency, or most of us, have that tendency at some point in our life to have a desire, if we've wandered off from that place that was home, head back there. Um, there's always something about home that draws us. And I think for Jesus, there was something about home that drew him back there. He had a longing to reach the people in that community. He had a heart for that community. You think about growing up. Do you know how hard it is? I, I, I look back, and I'm not where I grew up. I went through high school in Nova Scotia. But I think about who I was 
in high school. Tell you what, I'd have a hard time going back and trying to pastor a church in the town where I grew up. <laughs> they remember who I was, right? <laughs> they remember what I was like. They can point back to my life, to my teenage years and the person I was then. They can point to all the flaws. And isn't that exactly what the people did with Jesus? They're not pointing to his flaws per se, but they're pointing to who he was, how he grew up. And it says, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Right? They're pointing. We know Joseph. He had that carpenter shop. He was working here all those years, right? And they knew who he was. How does a carpenter's son become a preacher? <laughs> become this great prophet, healer, miracle worker? How does he have such a command of the scriptures? They don't, they're not so much interested in who Jesus is and looking at the evidence of his life and his preaching and his ministry. They're just pointing backwards. They're pointing back to his family and his upbringing. And it's a hindrance to them. They can't see beyond he's the carpenter's son. He's not his mother called Mary and his brethren. And I think his brethren, brothers and sisters are probably, many of them, still there, right? The people know his brothers and sisters by name. They know who they are. They know what kind of people they are. Some of Jesus' family weren't real thrilled with Jesus either, right? They, some of Jesus' brothers had a tendency to criticize Jesus as well. So it's not exactly a warm welcome that Jesus received going back to his hometown, but he had a heart to reach those people. They say, whence has this man this wisdom and these mighty works? How does a carpenter or a son of a carpenter grow up to be a great preacher, knowledgeable in all of the scriptures? You know, this isn't the first time this was asked about Jesus. If we go back to Luke chapter 2, very early in Jesus' life, we see something similar happening. In Luke chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass, 
that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? But you see their response. Jesus is sitting in the temple among all the doctors, the, you know, doctor so-and-so and all these highly educated theologians who were well studied in the scripture and he's sitting among them asking them questions. It says both hearing them and asking them questions. But you know what? It says, and all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. <laughs> He's asking them questions. But notice they're astonished at his answers. He's not just asking questions. He's answering the questions for them. Because he's probably answer, asking questions that they don't know the answer to. He's probably asking them questions. Who's the Messiah? When is he supposed to come? What are the signs of his coming? Right? He's probably prepping them to receive himself. And yet, even at this stage in his life, they just can't see it, right? But they're astonished at his understanding. That's the exact same words used to describe the people in his hometown when he comes to preach. That was... In verse 54, it says, He taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom? This isn't new in Jesus' life. He was 12 years old, and he has astonished the scribes and the Pharisees, the doctors, the theologians at the temple. He astonished them when he was 12 years old. Do you think Jesus didn't have some impact on his community as a teenage boy, do you think they really didn't see that in him back then? <laughs> and yet now, when he's 30-something, and he's back preaching again, they're still astonished. Why are they so astonished at Jesus? <laughs> Why do they not understand who he is? Why do they not understand that he's been doing this his whole life, <laughs> he has been studying and understanding the scriptures right from the beginning. But Jesus goes to those people who probably rejected him as a kid. They've rejected him once before when he's gone to that town. And once again, he's back there preaching again. Do you ever think about those people that you grew up with? Do you ever think about the friends that you had at different times in your life and wonder, wish that 
maybe they could hear the gospel. Maybe they could respond to the gospel. There's people, some close friends from my past that I've had some, some opportunities to talk to and that's been my biggest desire was to give the gospel to them, make sure that they knew that message. Jesus wasn't worried about his reputation from his past. Jesus wasn't worried about what they were going to think of him. He just needed to go and he needed to give that message to them. I said, I think about who I was, maybe the reputation I had growing up wasn't as good as it should have been. Should that stop me from trying? <laughs> Absolutely not. It should prompt me to go and show the change that God has made in my life, right? When Jesus receives this as his welcome after he preaches, it says in verse 57 that they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Now, I'm going to share this story. It's not to be critical of anybody. It just exemplifies the point that Jesus makes. And a number of years ago, Jennifer and I started volunteering. We, we work at Round Lake Bible Camp, just to clarify, but we started volunteering at Dorian Bible Camp. And they were without a camp director at the time. And so we applied, we put our application in, we filled, made resumes and went through the application process and we submitted our application for that position to be the director at Dorian Bible Camp. At the time we were attending the same church as several of the board members for the Bible Camp. And we were doing work with them, helping to, to clean up the place and do some upgrades and repairs. And so it was to them that we handed our resume and they assured us that that would get passed on to the appropriate people through what was then uh, or now One Hope Canada. And over the course of time, as months went by, eventually uh, the director for One Hope Canada was at the camp and we had the opportunity to meet him. And it turned out he had just then received our application for that position. And we found out that at the same time that we had submitted our application, there was a couple from South Africa had also submitted an application for that position. And the people on the board were very interested in that couple from South Africa. And so they kind of, from what we understand, just held on to our 
application to make sure that the other application got processed and that that interview process got started. And in the end, they did hire that couple from South Africa and they came and we know them quite well, Shannon and Martin Lord. And what we discovered when they came and we became friends with them the, the same week that they arrived, uh, I was preaching at the church in Dorian, so it was like the day after, or the two days after they arrived in Canada, or at least up, up here in Dorian, and they came to the church, and we ended up going to their house that afternoon, and we were there till about midnight that night, <laughs> chatting and talking, and became great friends. And we didn't um, begrudge them at all, getting hired for that position. But as in our conversation and as time went on and we saw the way that people responded to Shannon and Martin, they were just drawn to them. People loved meeting them, loved getting to know them. But you know what they really loved? Was his accent. <laughs> they loved the mystery of where they were from. They loved that distance. They were from this far off land and they've come here to Northern Ontario. And you know what, that distance, that mystery from coming from this far off land gave him an opportunity, gave them an inroad into ministry in this area that's far beyond anything that we ever could have done because people responded to that. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying, that the prophet is not without honor, except in his own country. And the point of that is that when you go to a far off land, people don't know you, they don't know your family, they don't know your history, they just, you have a strange accent that they think is intriguing, and you're from this mysterious place that they don't know much about. And they respond better to you than your hometown ever would, right? They respond better to you than they would respond to a far superior preacher that came from their own town. It's just the way people are. And that's what Jesus experienced here. One of the things that, one of the conversations we had, and we, we recognized that that is what was happening. And he said to us, they experienced the same thing in South Africa. They were just locals there. There was nothing special about them when they were in South Africa. They said if we were to go and apply at the, the camp ministry where they had just come from, we'd have had the same response there as what they received here. People would have fawned all over us and loved us and just wanted to hear us. Because that's, we're, we're new, different. We're from this far off, mysterious place. Another example of that is um, Jennifer and I, when we met, we were, we actually met at a place guiding canoe trips, um, largely for youth at risk. And that summer we took off and we went up north. Uh, we were, I had been guiding dog sledding trips for a couple of years at that point, and we went up to the Yukon and 
I found a dog sledding kennel and I started guiding dog sledding trips up in the Yukon. And the next spring we came back, we opened our own business teaching and guiding canoe trips. I guided several 35 day long canoe trips for a, for a private school and we did a lot of very interesting, very adventurous things. And several years later on Discovery Channel, these shows started coming on and there was a show that showed people up north, whether it was Alaska or whatever it was, but with these sled dogs and things like that. And Jen's parents started watching some of these shows and her dad would tell us about these people and the adventures and how rugged and tough and how amazing all this was. And like, yeah, that, I think we know some of those guys on that show. <laughs> we were there, we were doing that. But you know, in his mind, these people that he didn't know were very adventurous, very rugged and tough. But this loser son-in-law of his that couldn't hold down a job, that wouldn't settle down and couldn't afford to buy a house and couldn't afford the insurance on his own car because he wasn't, right? I was just a loser. He would look up to somebody else doing the exact same thing because he didn't know the details of their life, but he knew the details of my life. He knew the faults in my life. And that's what he saw. He didn't see the adventure. He saw the faults. And rightly so in many cases. But, but that is, we need to be careful. And here's the point of the whole thing. What do we, how do we respond? What are we like with our local preacher, with our local people that are in ministry? Do we act like these people acted towards Jesus when he went to his hometown? Do we look at their past? Do we look at their family? We know they're, you know, you look at me, I'm, I don't have a doctorate of anything. I don't have a master's of theology. I'm just a guy that reads and studies his Bible and loves the Lord, right? But you can look at that and say, well, what does he know? And you can look down on that and you can look to some of these other preachers and you can go online, and especially today, the tendency is to go online and we can pick anybody we want online to listen to. And we can pick these guys with this deep education and all this stuff and we can neglect our local preachers, right? And I'm not accusing anybody of doing that. I'm just saying that this is the tendency and the risk in our current day. But how do we respond to our local people who are trying to get into ministry? The, the local people who are trying to honor God, trying to minister for God, trying to reach our communities. See that last verse? It says that Jesus didn't do very many works. He couldn't preach. He couldn't be a good, effective minister in that community because the people wouldn't respond. 
are we guilty of making some of our local preachers ineffective <laughs> by the way we respond, by the lack of response that we have? So my question is, how can we change? How can we be better than that? How can we make sure that we're not guilty of acting like the people that were in Jesus' hometown? What changes do we need to make in our lives that will allow God to do a mighty work in our own community? Let's pray. Lord, as we look at Christ and his ministry and as he goes to his own hometown where the people rejected his person and didn't even consider the message that he had to, to bring. Uh, help us to not be like that. Help us to encourage people that we know, people that are trying to serve you, Lord, that are trying to have a heart to get into ministry to serve you, Lord. Help us to be a, an encouragement to them rather than a discouragement. Lord, strengthen us today. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us in all these things. In Christ's name, amen. Charmaine doesn't want to make it too easy for you to nap while, we're <laughs> while I'm preaching. First Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's pray before we carry on. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read it aloud in a group like this. Um, Lord, help us this morning as we look at this passage um, and consider the things that are said here and the things that we can learn. 
um, and how we can apply this to our lives. Lord, I just pray that you would give me words to speak um, and just ask that you would guide everything that is said this morning and that you would work in each heart here today, Lord, that um, we would all grow through this time. We just ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the last couple of weeks I've been kind of going through a little bit of stuff about the church, about what a church is supposed to be like, um, how we ought to to be as a church. Um, and I didn't plan for this message to land today, but this message landed today perfectly to go exactly with what Julie was presenting this morning. This passage describes exactly what Julie is describing happening in her community in Indonesia. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is that that is the model of what a church ought to be. This is what our goal should be, is to develop discipleship. We, we go out evangelizing. We need to reach people with the gospel. And we bring those people in, and then we teach them, and we disciple them. And they, in turn, become the teachers and leaders and go out and start that process over again. It's because of faithful people doing that for 2,000 years that any one of us is sitting here today. But it's up to us to make sure that carries on. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. If we look at verse 3 of this passage, it says, remembering, even if we go back to verse 2, Paul is writing to them, he says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul is just introducing, he's just keeping, letting them know we are thinking of you and we pray for you. We give thanks to God for you as a church. Last week I mentioned sometimes one of Paul's passages that says name, you know, greet the people by name. He wanted everybody named individually because he cared about every one of them. He knew them by name and he wanted each person to be greeted. And this is how his heart is towards this church as well. And he mentions them in his prayers. Give thanks to God always for you all. Make you mention you in our prayers. And this is the content of that prayer. It says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, our Father. He came evangelizing. He brought the gospel to the Thessalonian people. And they started a church. And exactly the process that Julie is describing in Indonesia took place in Thessalonica. They evangelized. They brought people and they started gathering and teaching 
And when Paul moved on to the next community, he kept in contact with that community. And he's been hearing what's been happening there. And he says, remember with those season, your work of faith and your labor of love. These people started working. They took up the torch. They took up, they just started doing what needed to be done to keep this church alive, to carry things on. They continued to evangelize. They continued to teach. And it's a, remembering your work of faith and your labor of love. Think of that. When we come to church, it's, it's not a labor of, it shouldn't be, a labor of duty. <laughs> it's like, oh, we've got to go to church. Oh, I gotta. I remember we volunteered to clean our church one time, and it was not a labor of love for us. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's our turn again, and it, we almost dreaded. Not so much the cleaning, but it was almost like we were dreading that we weren't going to do a good enough job for somebody else, and that they were going to maybe nitpick <laughs> about what we've done, and it took away the the love for what we were doing. We. We offered to do it out of a love for the ministry, but it became a labor of duty and a burden more than a joy. But for these people, working in their church, working in their community and getting that gospel out was a labor of love. They did it not as a burden, but through joy. And we'll see that just in the... In the coming verses he speaks of their joy through problems through persecu persecution and trials um, verse 6 it says having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost listening recently to various preaching and talks about happiness versus joy. Happiness is dependent on the things that are happening, right? It's about what our circumstances, and if we get these wonderful circumstances around us, we get happiness. But joy isn't dependent on our circumstances. It's not dependent on what's happening to or around us or for us. Joy is deeper. <laughs> joy comes from the hope that lays within us. And so when they received the word in much affliction, they still had joy in the Holy Ghost because they knew what they had when they received that. Even verse 10 describes what it is that they had, and it ends with, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And that's the joy, that's the hope that we have through Christ. That's the reason that this can be a labor of love. It's because we just care so much that our neighbors, the people around us, can receive that same blessing. We see in verse 6, it says, And ye became followers of us, and of the Lord. 
Julie said, it went from a mission of evangelism, just getting the gospel out there. And now when those people started gathering for their church services, it became a time of teaching and discipleship. And that is what we are called to do, is to be, to make disciples. I opened the service this morning with Matthew 28. I'm going to read it again. The last two verses in Matthew 28. It says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And this this passage contains evangelism. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. You're evangelizing. You're broadcasting the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The payment for sins, right? And in verse 20, it says, teaching them to observe. You're building disciples. You're discipling them and training them of how they ought to live because of that gospel. Verse 7 and 8 says, So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. It's like Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus, they're out in the communities around them, and they're trying to preach, and the, the people have already heard. <laughs> we didn't need to preach, because you guys already did the job. Imagine if I... I John Sabolta lives just down the road, and last year, when you guys accepted me as your pastor, he suggested I start going through the community door-to-door and introducing myself, and of course, that came to a, a quick end with COVID, but... Can you imagine if I went door to door and at every house that I knocked on, yeah, somebody's already been here. <laughs> they were already telling me about this church and they already knew, right? They've already heard. What a blessing as a pastor that would be to, to know that the people in the church were already reaching and doing that job, right? And that's what Paul experienced and that's what he's seeing happened in Thessalonica. Verse 7, again, it says, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. They, were, they became an example to everybody of what a true believer in Christ looks like. And a true follower of Jesus Christ has to become what Jesus was. And what was Jesus? He was a preacher. <laughs> He cared about people. Anytime we've been going through the book of Matthew, and everywhere he goes, a crowd gathers around. Why does a crowd gather around this man? Because he cared. 
they know there's something different. He has something that I need. And he did. We looked at the feeding of the 5,000. And then shortly after, the feeding of the 4,000. And what, what did he say? He says, don't send them away hungry. You feed them. <laughs> we need to feed these people. We need to care for these people and take care of their needs. Spend time with them. And he spent time with them. They were together for three days straight, apparently without food. And he says, it's time to feed these people before we send them away. He has to move on because he needed to reach more people. But the people always gathered. Everywhere he went, a crowd gathered because he loved them. But did that mean he didn't preach? He preached constantly. He hurt feelings. He stepped on toes. <laughs> he told them what in their life was sin and what needed to change. And people changed. And that's the kind of life that we need to live. People need to believe that I care about them as a person. Jesus wouldn't have gathered those kind of crowds if he didn't legitimately care about each individual. And people know when you're sincere. People know when you actually care about them as a person. Not just doing my duty, preaching the gospel, telling them, see signs, see pictures of signs at different places. Christians thinking they're doing well, holding up a sign that says, turn or burn. And it's a true statement, but it's not a loving, it's not a, I care about your soul. <laughs> I care about you as a person. It's just a, I'm doing my duty and I'm, right, here's, I'm going to shove the gospel in your face. But it's not the way that Jesus did it. <laughs> He did it differently. He did it by building relationships and caring about the person. And that's the kind of life that we need to live as a Christian. And we talk about doing, right? I'm talking about as a Christian, we need to get out there and preach. We need to get out there and do good works. We need to live a certain way. We need to stop sinning. We need to stop doing the things that don't please God. So there's lots of do's and there's lots of don'ts in the Christian life. And the Bible is full of teaching while we, how we ought to live. But absolutely none of that will get me access into heaven. And Julie mentioned that this morning as well. It's not through anything that I can do that's going to get me there. It is simply by believing what Jesus did. Believing that I don't deserve it. That Jesus took that on him when he died on the cross. He took the payment for what I've done I deserve hell, but Jesus didn't deserve hell. He, was, he died letting God put his wrath. And he ends with this in verse 10. Whom he raised, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, 
which delivered us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come is eternity in hell as payment for the sin that I've committed. And the only way out of that is believing that Jesus took that for me. And there is nothing I can do to make that right with God other than believing that Jesus did it for me. People who have been in church most of their lives probably know all these verses by heart. I'm going to read them anyway because not all of us are in that category. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, you have to look at chapter 2 instead of chapter 1 for it to say the right thing. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by grace through faith. Faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Not of works. Like There is nothing I can do, no amount of good that I can do to get salvation, to get an escape from eternity in hell, except believing in that work that Jesus did. Acts 16.31, I mentioned this um, recently. The Philippian, no, maybe the Philippian jailer. When Paul is in jail and they're singing and the gates open, And everybody stays. And the prison guard, says, verse 29, says, Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's it. That's all. It's the only thing you can do. It's interesting. He says, and thy house. Because when I get saved, sorry, I'm going to make a change. My family is going to see the change in me, and they're going to, not every time, it's not a guarantee, but often my family will also believe and be saved. Sometimes that's dependent on me doing what we're talking about this morning well, right? If I'm living as a Christian well, my family will see that. But if I don't, if I don't change, if I'm still a miserable, if I beat my wife, <laughs> is she going to be convinced that this is such a great religion that I've joined? Probably not. Can go one more spot in John chapter 3. I hope you know verse 16. But the following verses, I'll read verse 16 as well, but the following verses where I want to really look. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
It's because God loves and cares, and he wants everybody to have that opportunity for salvation. Verse 17 says, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. People ask, how can a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't. They choose it by rejecting him. His offer is for salvation. He says they're condemned already. His offer is that you can receive it and you can get forgiveness. And that's the message that every one of us, once you believe that message, it's your turn to spread it to your friends and family and neighbors. But that's not the end of the story for you, right? Believing that is not the end of the story. God wants us to change. He wants to make a change in our life and make us a new creation, a different person. I'm not going to turn to the verse, but in, in James chapter 2, he's talking about faith and works. And he's not claiming that works will save you. But he says, I will show thee my faith by my works. If I truly believe what God has done for me, it will cause me to act. <laughs> It'll cause me to change and do something and obey what the book says that I ought to do. It's going to make a difference in my life. I will turn to Second Peter chapter 3. In the last verse, verse 18, Peter says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. It says, But grow. We need to grow. Once I believe, I now need to grow. We plant a seed in the ground in the spring and we don't expect that planting it is the end of the story. We, we water that thing, we fertilize that thing, and hopefully some of us, if you planted a garden this spring, are actually harvesting a crop now, right? <laughs> we have an abundance of zucchini. <laughs> Our neighbors are trying to offer them to us. And we're like, nope, we got lots, thanks. <laughs> what do you do with all this? And, but it's a result, there's an expectation of growth. And God expects us to grow just like that. And he says two things, but grow in grace. We call grace, when God's grace to us in our salvation is God's giving us something that we don't deserve, right? That's the whole message of the gospel is like, I can't earn it. I can't do anything to achieve it. It's through grace. God lovingly offers 
that freely through just faith, believing. And so we need to grow in grace. We need to emulate that with each other <laughs> as a church. And I mentioned to someone this morning, I almost dreaded coming in to the church today because of all the different views on what to do with the face diaper, right? <laughs> There's so many different opinions of whether we should or shouldn't or whether we should be obeying the government's rules on this and what we think of all that. There is such a broad view and such strong opinions that it is, it's literally ripping churches apart. And it has the potential to do that to us. And we need, as a church, as individuals, to grow in grace. And those, it doesn't matter what side of that you're on, you need to have grace with the other side, with the other views. This isn't a salvation issue. This isn't a doctrinal thing that should drive a church apart, and yet, if you let it, it will. If you make this a major issue, whichever side you're on, if you make this a major issue in one way or another, it can split the church in half, and it'll cause hurt, and it'll weaken the ministry of the church and the witness of the church. We need to grow in grace, and that's just you know, here's an example that's literally in our face, right? And the other thing that it says is we need to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to open this book, read it, study it, find out what God wants me to do. How does God want me to live? And it's different than what, how the world lives. We were talking the other day. The Bible says he want, God wants us to be a peculiar people. The world should think we're weird. Not in a bad way. <laughs> Not too weird. But weird. We should be peculiar in that, why don't you do this or that? Why are you... So caring to these people who are cruel to you, right? How do you have joy when everything around you is misery? That is the peculiarness that God wants us to have. And so that people will see us. And that's what Paul's looking at at the Thessalonian church. He says, you're in samples. You're an example of what a Christian ought to look like, of how God can change a person's life. And he says, you went from serving idols to serving the living and true God, right? That's the change that God can make in us. There's basically three I'm sure you could come up with more. Three purposes 
that I can think that are obvious for God changing us and wanting us to live this way. And the first is that it's for our own good. Just because it's in my face, um, Paul was at the neighbor's last night and the adults were out next door and they're drinking and partying and they're loud and making a ruckus, right? And Paul's friend, who he's there to spend his time with, 14-year-old kid, can't go to bed because he's worried about the adults. He's worried about his aunts and uncles and his grandparents, and he wants to make sure they all get to bed safe at night. It's not the first time I've heard him say that. He came over one day and he's like, yeah, I was up till after midnight last night because I wanted to make sure my grandparents got to bed because they were out drinking. That's not a burden that a 14-year-old should have. And the Bible talks about not being given to wine, not drinking to excess, not getting drunk because it's for our own good. <laughs> not because he wants to take away fun, but all these things the Bible talks about that God doesn't want us to do, the whole sexual thing before marriage and outside of marriage, it's for our own good. <laughs> because it's better for us. Our life can be better and happier without those things. We're not taking away our joy. He's giving us true happiness and true joy and a way to enjoy life in a healthy, productive way. And so it is for our own good. The second thing is that it's pleasing to God. We'll turn to, to Romans chapter 12. Other passages say, Be ye holy as I am holy. That's God's purpose, is that we would be like him. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God wants us to be holy because it's pleasing to him. That's what he is. That's how he is. That's his design for us. And it pleases him when we live a life of holiness. And so that's a second reason for this direction that God gives us. And the third is more to the point of this morning's topic. It's an example to the world. Philippians 3 verse 17 says, Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. It's like when somebody's living the life that you see described in the Bible, the way that God wants us to live, living a holy life, you mark that person and you can follow that person. Live by their example. Look at the way they interact with people. Look at the love they have for people. Look at the life of self-sacrifice 
and follow that example. It's, it's given to us to be an example to others. And we see that that was his whole point in First Thessalonians. It says, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your word is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. We are supposed to be an example to everybody around us of what, if we don't, if we're not different, <laughs> if we don't seem like we have something special in our life, why would our friends and family want that? <laughs> right? If, if it hasn't changed us and made us a better person, why would they want that? We need to be different. We need to change. When God comes into our life, when we believe in that gospel for our salvation, God wants us to change because he wants us to be an example. When I look out and I see, I see a lot more faces today than usual. <laughs> but all of this, I've been talking about the church and how we need to care for each other, how we need to build this cohesive family unit as a church. You know, most of that burden falls back on me. All of my preaching in the last couple of weeks has really fallen back on me because I need to make that possible. I need to lead us in that direction. And to make disciples, I can get up here and talk and not change or help you in any way. I can fill time week after week preaching sermons that mean nothing to you and don't help you in any way. But the burden falls on me to preach a message that can help you to grow, to learn, to make you a disciple, to equip you to be able to go into the community. Paul and Timothy and whoever else was ministering in Thessalonica, they did a good enough job teaching that they could actually leave and that church, those people, reached a broad area around them. And Paul came back and says, I didn't have to teach them anything. <laughs> you did the job. But you know what that means is Paul first did the job well there. He taught them well enough that they were then able to go and do it. And so, yes, that burden falls on me to teach you, to equip you to do that. And I hope that I'm doing that. And I hope that you have a heart to want to do that. Let's pray. Lord, help us to get this message, Lord. Put this message into our hearts. Let us look at the examples we have in Scripture. The entire book is full of examples that are there for us to learn from, Lord. Help me to be the example. Help me to lead in the way that you would have me to lead, Lord. Give us a heart for our community, Lord. Help us to spread that gospel message. Again, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. Ask us all in Jesus' name.